and welcome. You're listening to Radio Maria. This is, as I was saying, it's a great uh, pleasure for me to welcome Father Ewan Marley. Hello, Father Ewan. Hello. Father Ewan, I understand we're carrying on with the Book of Wisdom today. Last week we did uh, Chapter 7, which you said was uh, one of your favorites um, from the mm-hmm. Old Testament. And uh, so today we, we're going on to, to Chapter 8. Yes, chapter eight and possibly a bit of chapter nine if we have time. As I tend to keep going through the book, uh, seventeen chapters I think to go. Yeah, uh, is it seventeen? Uh, yeah, nineteen chapters. <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah, nineteen chapters. <laughs> so I'll start with a brief prayer. Yes. The book of wisdom is about wisdom, but it also has behind it the story of Solomon, who started in wisdom, but fell away from wisdom. Not that you would actually understand that from the book. The book really goes back to the young Solomon. It doesn't tell us what happened at the end. But it also means that the Book of Wisdom is about the search for truth, beauty, purpose in life for everyone, especially young people, because when you're young is the time when you really should make those decisions, when you should be looking most carefully. So today I'll pray for the young, pray for all those who seek their way in life, that they understand that the the life they live will not be the life they expect. It's always full of surprises and challenges. We pray that they have confidence and hope that the truth they are seeking is is actually seeking them. You will find the truth and then discover it was the truth that found you, for the truth is God. We pray for all young people that they may have some sense, some hope in that truth. Amen. So last week I finished chapter 7 and it said, not just my favourite, but I argued it but the most beautiful to my mind uh, chapter in the whole of the Old Testament. Even though, like the rest of the Book of Wisdom, it's written in Greek, not Hebrew, and it's probably always written in Greek. It's not a translation, although that's, I might argue about that, but... And it's a hymn to wisdom itself. And it ends chapter seven with wisdom is more beautiful or more put together than the sun, more fitting, it excels every arrangement of the stars. Compared with light, she is found to be better. For light is succeeded by the night, but against wisdom, evil does not prevail, or evil cannot conquer wisdom. So that's the idea of wisdom is a sort of light. It's also the sort of light that we see in the skies. I imagine uh, some Greek pagan who knew little of Judaism or even less of Christianity who came across this book. At first, they might think this is just a book of Greek wisdom written in Greek. The language is familiar. It uses many terms that we find in the writings of Plato and later Greek philosophers. You should always remember, though, for a Greek philosopher, the search for truth was itself something like what we would call a religious search, to search for something greater than themselves. They're not academics teaching abstruse arguments about how we understand language or so forth. It's a quest. It's also an act of love. Philosophy means love of wisdom. Philo, love, Sophie, Sophia is wisdom. And that's a serious description. It's not just liking wisdom. 
it's the idea which we find in Plato that somehow we are drawn to something greater than ourselves, and that greater thing we call wisdom. However, the Greek philosopher might also find the Book of Wisdom, after they read it right through, a bit strange for one thing, who is this Solomon, this obscure king of this obscure kingdom. And also, as we will find as the later weeks, if I continue with this book, it starts to bring in the history of Israel. It brings it in a way that assumes you already know something of that history. If you read it for the first time without that background of having read Genesis and Exodus, uh, you probably find it quite difficult to understand what he's saying. I think most of us have at least the story of Exodus and you know, we story come out of Egypt, so we would understand it. That's for later. But there are other things that might make the Greek philosopher suspect that this isn't the work of Greek philosophy, that it's something different. And part of that is the idea that wisdom is a sort of created thing, but involved in creation. But strangely, and this would be strange to the Greeks, thought, Wisdom isn't just concerned with ordering the universe. Wisdom actually wishes to come down to us. That's an important distinction. For the Greek philosophers, it's always a sense of our making a way upwards. And though they might talk of a calling, it's a calling that comes from the heart or their own desires. It's not a literal calling. It's not someone actually saying, come to me. It's not quite how they think. They haven't quite got that idea. It's a rather Christian idea. It said in the prayer, we look for the truth, but the truth finds us. Truth's a bit more abstract, uh, well, shall I say abstract for the, the Greeks, a bit more, a bit more like an idea, powerful and real. And they, you know, they did believe in some sort of life after death, but it's a life of the mind. And it's not really something which is going to come looking for us. It's not, there's no sense of redemption. There's no sense of a, a passionate concern for us, no centrally of us being loved by wisdom. We love wisdom, but wisdom loving us, that would seem strange. And yet, if they thought about it, they'd say, well, why would you only love in one direction? Well, because that's part of the problem. Plato, in fact, when he talks about love, tends to talk about the lover and the beloved. And he assumes that they're two different things. He doesn't really see that you can be both a lover and a beloved. He doesn't quite see the circularity of love. And that's a different thing that we'll find in, in the Book of Wisdom, even more in Christianity. It's not just loving and being loved. It's the fact that those two must come together. We, we are sought by what we seek. We are loved by what we start to love. So... We'll carry on then with chapter 8. She, that's wisdom, reaches mightily from one end of the earth to the other and she orders all things well. I loved her and sought her from my youth. I desired to take her for my bride. Interesting, the word uses nymph, which of course is a Greek mythological word, but the idea of nymphs that they embody the physical things so very often Rivers are like nymphs, and that embodiment is the Greek way of thinking, but here he's using it in a quite different way. Behind this is a very different kind of wedding, which I'll speak of in a moment. 
I fell in love with her beauty. She glorifies her noble birth by living with God and the Lord of all loves her. Which she's initiated in the knowledge of God and an associate in his works. At this point, your Greek philosopher is going to be a bit puzzled. He thinks, well, I seek wisdom, but wisdom seems to have something higher than itself or herself. So the book of wisdom personifies wisdom is female all through, so we say she. She glorifies her noble birth by her life with God. The Lord of all loves her. For she is initiated in the knowledge of God and an associate in his works. Now there is a sense in which Socrates or Plato might have seen wisdom as having something else above themselves, but that something else would be the basic truth. Um, they make things in accordance with that truth. But, but basically speaking, there's not really any sense that there's anything higher than wisdom. And wisdom is therefore part of the cosmos. Another problem, and here I think Plato would disagree with other Greeks, but even though they see the universe as an ordered reality, as beautiful in itself, it's just a thing that happens to be the case. Socrates, in fact, that was his objection to the Greek thinkers. He says, they say that the universe is what it is, and they describe it, and it's interesting. They tell you whether the earth is flat or round and so forth. They don't say what is best, what is the best thing to be. How good can it be? And you see Socrates, at least in Plato's memory of him, was inching his way to some sense that there must be something perfect. Doesn't quite see that that perfect thing in a way has to be greater than the universe. It's not the universe itself. And if you think that, then you have to say that the, the ordering of the universe at the moment is temporary. We are different, of course, because our astronomy is rather more chaotic. It's just planets and stars, and they're interesting and they're strange, but a modern astronomer doesn't concern himself or herself with the fundamental reality. They may do in their own faith. I've known many very devout astronomers, and astronomy is the one science that seems to have more believers in God than the other sciences, partly because the vastness of the universe makes them realize how small they are. But astronomy isn't looking for order in the universe, it's just saying what is the universe like? And Socrates says that's not enough. You have to say something more. Why is this universe what it is? What's it for? But because Socrates doesn't understand that this wisdom will be seeking us, because he has no knowledge of call of Abraham and the Israelites dialogue with God and the incarnation hasn't happened so Christ hasn't come among us Socrates can't really solve that riddle all he can say is that in our minds, hearts, souls we have this yearning for truth and he believes that he can enter into that truth he's not even sure that you can stay there and he thinks reincarnation is a possibility he's not sure that you'd ever succeed in it getting as high as you like, but you'll always go down again. You can climb the ladder, but you can't be sure you won't go back down again. Uh, so it's not actually all that attractive and not all that encouraging. So what does the Book of Wisdom say? She is an initiate in the knowledge of God and an associate in his works. That's a new revised standard translation. Once again, the Book of Wisdom is using Greek language, or the language even of pagans initiates 
how the people go to temples where they learn wisdom. Well, which seems rather pointless, like learning meaningless words or rituals, or still engaging in animal sacrifices, and basically doing things for the sake of doing them. An associate in his works. Remember, he's not talking about people, he's talking about wisdom. Wisdom is initiate in the knowledge of God. It's not a human being who lives in a temple and carries out strange religious beliefs and practices. Wisdom is initiate with God, and God is greater than the temple, any temple. Even the temple in Jerusalem, as Christ says, there is something greater than the temple here. And then wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, looks at the fact that we do desire something greater than the things of this earth. If riches are a desirable possession in life, what is richer than wisdom? The active maker or causer of all things. Maker doesn't mean creator there, just means the one that shapes things. If understanding is able to do something, or effective as your bystander says, who more than she is a fashion of what exists? If anyone loves righteousness, justice, or labors or virtues, she teaches self-control and prudence, justice and courage. These are Greek thoughts and Greek virtues. But righteousness, of course, is something only Israel understands in their sermons, the righteousness with God. Nothing in life is more profitable for mortals than these. And he calls us mortals. Um... life of men. Yeah, I would say actually mortals is probably too much of a translation there. However, remember all through the Book of Wisdom, they've been saying to the writer, wisdom is about immortality, about living forever. And not just in the sense that we ourselves are spiritual beings, but also in the sense that the whole point of living forever is to share in wisdom. Question, some philosophers say, why would you want to live forever? But then they miss out God. Well, because God is infinite beauty, wisdom, truth. And you can live forever and enjoy that infinite truth and beauty. It will never exhaust itself. The infinity of God is actually necessary for us to yearn to live forever. It's not quite explained by the Book of Wisdom, but it's certainly implied. So, wisdom goes on. Um, if anyone longs for wide experience, for broad experience, she knows the things of old, the ancient things. She deduces the things to come. She understands twists of speech, solutions of riddles. She's full of knowledge of signs and wonders of the outcomes of seasons and times. But, uh, that's rather Greek. You know, that, you know, the idea the Greek said, we're here to gaze on the stars because they're wonderful. But then the stars themselves, although very orderly, have quite a few disordered things among them. Meteors, comets, the planets, which don't keep an orderly form of life that appear from different parts, appear and disappear. The word planet actually means wanderer in Greek. The, star, the stars aren't quite as orderly as we wish. And that's a great puzzle for the Greeks. But the Book of Wisdom takes a different turn that says, Therefore I determined to take her to live with me, knowing she would give me good counsel and encouragement and cares and griefs. Because of her I shall glory among the multitudes and honour in the presence of the elders, though I am young. And that's a twist, because like I said, unlike the Greeks, 
Socrates thinks we seek wisdom. What the Book of Wisdom says is ambiguous. You might say, well, I live with wisdom, but actually it's quite literal. He thinks wisdom is starting to come close to us. It's a presence of God's power in us. It's not quite the same as God because wisdom is clearly created, but the created wisdom is what means we live with God. God is near us. The word is symbiotic symbiosis. So, as you say, we now have a change with some coming near, but perhaps time to stop for some music. Indeed. So I've chosen a version of the Magnificat in honour of Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. This is by Sister Sinjin.
Listening to Radio Maria, that was the Magnificat sung by Sister Sinjin. Over to you, Father Ewan. Okay, so as I say, um, the twist is that the writer of the Book of Wisdom now thinks of wisdom as something that comes to him. And I say that's more than a metaphor. There is a sense that wisdom is close to us. And he discusses the benefits of wisdom to him as a king. I shall be found keen in judgment in the sight of rulers, I shall be admired, it means other rulers. Because of her I shall have immortality and leave an everlasting remembrance to those who come after me. And I said in previous weeks that even though being remembered is a sort of immortality, that he's looking for something greater than that. I shall govern peoples and nations will be subject to me, dread monarchs will be afraid of even to hear of me among the people. I shall show myself capable and courageous in war. And this is the memory of Solomon in, in Israel. He's, his kingdom is the largest kingdom that Israel ever had. After he dies, his sons quarrel and Israel is divided. But we think about this history of that, that's the memory. He is both the wisest king, but also the most powerful king. He's a king who has to work with other kings. Israel is not so great that it controls the Middle East or anything like that. There are other kingdoms, but what Solomon is remembered as doing has been good at forming alliances. And famously, he buys cedars from Lebanon to build a temple. And this is also something which Solomon is remembered with. He built the first temple. David, his father, was not allowed to build a temple because of his sins. When I enter my house, I shall find rest with her, for companionship with her is no bitterness. Life with her is no pain, but gladness and joy. And when I consider these things inwardly, I think kinship with wisdom is immortality and friendship with her pure delight to leave us of our hands unfailing wealth. In the experience of her company, understanding and renown, sharing her words, went about seeking how to get her for myself. And then the twist again, how do you get this wisdom? As a child, I was naturally gifted and a good soul fell to my lot. Or rather being good, I entered an undefiled body. It might be rather worryingly a tint of platonic doctrine there of the idea of the pre-existence of the soul. Not necessarily, it's not saying that explicitly, but the soul can be created, but the soul can be seen as entering an undefiled body, as he said. Being good, I entered an undefiled body. That's a rather anti-Platonist idea. There's a tendency in later Greek thought to think of the body as somehow corrupt in itself, but both Israel and Christianity insist that the body is created by God. It's not undefiled because it's material, because the material is also from God. And then the all-important line here, I perceive that I would not possess wisdom unless God gave her to me. It was a mark of insight to know whose gift she was. So I appealed to the Lord and implored him with my whole heart, I said. And that will bring us to chapter 9. What did he say? 
And so he's saying two things. One, wisdom comes from God. It's a gift, fundamentally. All faith, all things that matter, it's we live in grace. But also, part of the grace, part, and he does actually use the word charis here, which is translated in Latin as gratia, which gives us English word grace. Is part of the grace is knowing that it's a gift. To know of whom this gift happened from the Lord. And I asked him and I spoke from all my heart, from my whole heart. So, your Greek philosopher at this point realises he's in a very different world. He's in a world where people speak of God, as a Greek philosopher does, but God seems to be something more than just the unmoved mover, the kind of theory of ultimate reality. God seems to be something invested with choice. God can choose to give us something unless God gives us it. Giving itself goes with creation. It's a form of Greek philosophy, and it's something that actually found its way into some forms of Judaism in the Middle Ages. Sees creation as almost like an accident, a emanation, as they call it, that the perfection, the perfection of the unmoved mover inevitably tends to allow imperfections to come from it. It's not a choice. It's rather almost like uh, the limitations of human beings that, you know, things come from us. Uh, we can't help making footprints in the earth. We can't help affecting the things we touch. We breathe in the air and they breathe it back out again. And it's not really sustainable, a perfect God who actually is not perfect in choice. But in the beginning, God created in heaven and the earth. He said, let there be light. Right from the start, Judaism sees it as a choice. If creation is a choice, so is the reception of wisdom. We receive that from God. So, since it's important to understand that the grace comes from God, the natural response is gratitude. And that's what chapter 9 is about. It's a praise hymn. It's a praise of wisdom, but it's also praising and thanking God. So we'll see how that goes. Chapter 9. O God of my ancestors and Lord of mercy, who have made all things by your word and by your wisdom have formed humankind to have dominion over the creatures you have made and rule the world in holiness and righteousness and pronounce judgment and uprightness of soul. Give me the wisdom that sits by your throne and do not reject me from among your servants. So, he's asking God for the gifts of wisdom, but it's a gift of wisdom which itself is a completion of God's creation. God has created all things by wisdom and therefore to understand all that God has created, we need wisdom. Wisdom isn't just a quality that shapes the world, it's also a quality that enables us to understand that the world is shaped for a purpose. And the world is created not just to be orderly, as the Greek would say, but holy. So to rule the world in holiness and justice and in the straightness of soul and right judgment. The soul itself is, is necessary 
for the sake of this world, to complete the world's order, human beings have to be orderly too. Of course, we're not very orderly. So he says, give me the wisdom that is sitting by your throne. Once again, this idea of wisdom in the presence of God rather than being God. Do not reject me from among your children. For I am your son, so I am your slave and the son of your maidservant, a weak man with little time and small or lesser in the understanding of judgment and of laws. And who then is perfect among the sons of men? Without wisdom being present, they regard it as nothing. Now, the son of your maidservant is interesting because the story of Solomon, which is not told in this book, but every Jew knew, is that Solomon himself was formed by wife Bathsheba, who herself was married to Uriah the Hittite, who David arranges to die in battle because he falls in love with her. It's a very seamy, unpleasant story. In effect, he kills her husband indirectly, and he takes her for his wife. And yet out of that seamy, unpleasant story comes the great Solomon. Because no one is actually refused grace and wisdom by God because of the circumstances of her birth. We all remain children of God. So son of your maidservant, uh, it's quite... Um, quite fraught with all sorts of meanings. She was, in fact, a maidservant of sorts, but uh, she becomes one of the wives of David. In the end, he, uh, the son Solomon is the one who's to become the, the king of Israel. Could have been his other son, Absalom, if you know that story, who rebelled against his father, wanted to be king while his father's still alive, and ends up dying in battle to the great grief of David. It's clear that David himself would rather have Absalom as his, the king of Israel, but and he loved, but God thinks different. There's a lot of meaning in that very simple phrase. I am your servant and the son of your maidservant. And he goes on to talk about his life. Find it. Go back to there. Um, you have chosen me to be king of your people and to be judged over your sons and daughters. You have given command to build a temple on your holy mountain, an altar in the city of your habitation, a copy of the holy tent that you prepared from the beginning. So there it is, Solomon built a temple. A copy of the holy tent is the idea that in some ways the temple is a, an image of creation. Uh, not in the sense that the whole universe looks like one big temple, but in the sense that it symbolizes that creation. And it may be bound up with some idea of the priest's vestments, Jewish priests of four colors, which may represent four elements. So. And uh, the veil of the temple itself may be a representation of the four elements out of which creation is shaped. This is not quite the same as creation in the full sense of creating from nothing. There's always that ambiguity in language between creating in the sense of causing to exist or creating in the sense of shaping something to be what is meant to be. So the temple itself is bound up with wisdom. 
she was wisdom, she who knows your works, was present when you made the world. She understands what is pleasing in your sight and what is right according to your holy com commandments. I'm just commandments here. Send her forth from the holy heavens and from the throne of your glory, send her that she may labor at my side, that I may learn and understand what is pleasing to you. For she knows all things and she will guide me wisely in my, action, in my actions and guard me with her glory. Then my works will be acceptable. I shall judge your people justly. I shall be worthy of the throne of my father. Who can learn the counsel of God or who can discern what the Lord wills? The reasoning of mortals is without worth. Our designs are prone to fail. The perishable body weighs down the soul and this earthly tent burdens the mind which is thinking of the thoughtful mind. Thoughtful is a misfortune, not a best word there because we think of thoughtful as kind and buying people the right birthday gift. But thoughtful here means reasoning mind. We can hardly guess at what is in earth and what is at hand we find with labour. But who has traced out what is in the heavens? The reasoning of mortals then is without worth. It says the perishable body weighs down the soul, this earthly tent burdens the thoughtful mind. I hear a Greek philosopher would say, oh yeah, I get that, because that's what we believe. But the difference is that behind that, there's a story which the Jews know, which of course is the story of Adam and Eve, that the the body is prone to destruction that does act like a weight. It's earthly, it's limited, but it didn't have to be like that. It could have lived forever. You know, they could have eaten from the tree of life, but unfortunately they ate to the tree of knowledge of good and evil instead. And so we die. It doesn't mention that in this passage. It doesn't tell us that, but that's behind it. There's also increasingly a sense too of resurrection, and resurrection is a very different thought from the Greek thought. The Greeks think of themselves as escaping the body. The idea that the body should rise again is quite strange to them, because to them the body is just a prison. And this is one of the issues about whether the Book of Wisdom is far enough away from the Greek thought. I think it is at least implicitly, because it is written within the context of Israel, and that's implied. But certainly the idea of resurrection becomes more common in Israel. By the time of Christ, it's already a commonplace belief, commonplace enough that there are those who specifically attack it. You know, like you know, the Sadducees saying that you know, there's, there is no resurrection. You always know something has become common when there's a people who are famous for not accepting it. And yet this idea of resurrection is what will spread through the world. It's very interesting, of course, when Paul goes to Athens, he's, he's doing fine till he talks about the resurrection at his point to start laughing at him because it shows how embedded in their idea was that perfection is spiritual, escape from the physical, material world. God made everything. God made the heaven and the earth. Therefore, what God has made is good. So, who has learned your counsel unless you have given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high? And thus the paths of those on earth were set right, and people were taught what pleases you, and you were saved by wisdom. 
and it does say the Holy Spirit. Who has known your counsel unless you have given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from the highest? So the ways on earth are made right, the things that are pleasing to you have taught, and we are saved by wisdom. And that last line, it's the very last word in the Greek, the sophism, they were saved. By wisdom, they were saved. That's quite un-Greek. The idea of salvation, the idea that there's something greater than us which is coming to save us. Wisdom doesn't save us. Wisdom is just what we seek. This is what we want in the Greek thought. Here, we are saved by wisdom because wisdom is a servant to the living God. So, Perhaps a little bit more music then, and then a very short final thought. We're going to listen to a um, version of Psalm 1 by the group Poor Bishop Hooper. Mm, it's quite late, huh?
So, coming to the end now, um, that's me finished chapter 9. So next week, chapter 10 becomes a history of Israel, beginning with Adam. Adam. And then that's where the Greek philosopher is going to find himself floundering, lost, something different. So we just finish with a prayer. We pray that, we say, the young seek wisdom, but we also pray, remembering that Solomon fell into folly. Those of us that are getting old, that we don't lose faith and hope, and we never forget that there are always more challenges in life. Time is elastic. Not much can happen over years, but a great deal can happen in a very short time in our lives. So we pray for grace and hope to get through the next challenge. And remember, we may seek for the truth, but it's the truth that finds us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Radio Maria, and thank you to all of you who support us with a monthly donation. We rely entirely on the generosity of our listeners to continue to be a Christian voice by your side. To find out more about how to support us, please visit www.radiomariaengland.uk.